This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I've spent the last week thinking a lot about the ripple effects of the war in Gaza the way a battle thousands of miles away can fracture and then manifest as smaller conflicts here at home. There are those reports of actual violence. A six-year-old Palestinian child killed in Chicago. says their landlord, seen here, targeted them because they were Muslims. That landlord is now facing first-degree murder and hate A 69-year-old Jewish man who died after being knocked to the ground at a protest. The sheriff's department says it has not ruled out the possibility of a hate crime. Demonstrations of hate have consequences, and we're seeing it all over this country right now. But there are also these acts of rhetorical violence, whether it's people who in the early days cheered Hamas on on social media, or people plastering college campuses with pictures of pro-Palestinian advocates calling them anti-Semites. Such intimidation is counterproductive, said Harvard Hillel, a Jewish student. I've clocked dozens of acts that are somewhere in between, things I witness or read about and come away feeling like I only know a partial truth. Here's what I do know. New York City reports that bias crimes in October more than doubled. Every day I log on to my computer and I see new incidents, a brawl outside a movie theater that's screening footage of Hamas's attack, a bomb threat that forces a Muslim civil rights organization to move their gala. To be honest, in the last week, I've found myself quietly muting parts of my social feed, the parts that have become too strident, too gruesome, too much. That's why I called up Eamon Ismail and Emily Tamkin, because they've refused to look away. Ever since the Hamas attack on October 7th, they've been warning about the ways violence in the Middle East can ossify here at home. Have you guys read each other's work? Mm-hmm. Of course. Of course. I'm Emily's biggest fan. I don't know if <laughs> I, I told her that. Emily's Jewish and Eamon's Muslim. So on the surface, you might think they've come to this moment from different perspectives which they have. But if you scratch the surface, you'll see this common aesthetic, a commitment to looking unflinchingly at the humans who are caught up in this war and considering them quite separately from the political actors at work all around them. While I've been worrying about what I can say or if I can say anything at all, Emily and Eamon have been obsessing over choosing the right words to say exactly what they want. Given how vocal they've each been, I wanted to know how many people they'd had to mute online. When I asked, Eamon burst out laughing. Emily tried to tally it all up. Uh, I don't know how many people I've muted over the past month. It's definitely been more than five. It's just not fun. Everybody's angry. You could say anything and people will find a way to twist it and make it like you're supporting evil. You are evil. 
you're a baby killer, X, Y, Z. It's not productive and it's embarrassing, honestly. Emily calls what's happening right now context collapse, a term of art for the way online dialogue can get warped, instantly distilled into something that fits preconceived ideas and narratives. This phenomenon is heightened in moments of emotional intensity. And right now, it's not just happening online. If she was not so outspoken already, Emily could see how it would just leave her simply mute. The angriest, most hateful, most violent comments that I personally have seen directed toward me since October 7th have been from other Jewish people. It's kind of heartbreaking. It, it, yeah. It, I mean, I wrote a piece um, that said that Jews who disagree with you are still Jewish, right? And that the idea that Jews who were calling for a ceasefire, that that saying, well, they're not really Jewish, is not an argument. Like, it's, I think it's, it's quite a cruel thing to say. And that piece, more than anything that I've written, inspired, like, rage. Do you feel like there's a lot of people you can't reach at this moment? I think that in times of crisis and times of fear, there are sort of two routes that you can take. One is that you let that fear envelope you, and you let that fear sort of um, bring you to your own group, your own tribe, and to see that fear. There is another option, though, which is that fear and pain can actually be, in a sad way, an opportunity to recognize fear and pain in others. It could be an opening. Exactly. Today on the show, we're going to take this second path to try to figure out what to say in a moment where saying anything can feel inadequate, painful, risky. We're going to solve it right here. Yeah. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to fix it. We're all Bob the Builder energy. <laughs> I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Can each of you explain who you are and why this conflict is important to you? I would just say, like, let's start with Eamon. I'm Eamon Ismail. Hi. I am a staff writer for Slate magazine. I am a Muslim Egyptian American. I grew up in the East Coast. And, you know, what's interesting about my experience growing up is that I grew up in a, a very insular Muslim community where I went to Muslim school. I did Muslim Boy Scouts. We did Muslim everything, Muslim Taekwondo. That's a thing. Muslim Taekwondo. I love it. I swear to God, I was uh, I was a yellow belt. Um, <laughs> and for me, the Palestinian question was so intrinsically 
entwined with who we were as a community, where we felt like as people in America, we had a stake and influence in what was happening there. Uh, and this continuous Nekba, this catastrophe that only sought to create peace for Israel, but create continuous catastrophe for the Palestinians and this imbalance of power. And so, you know, some of my earliest memories are at protests in D.C. with my parents holding flags and chanting things. What are the chants? It's, so I got to say, this is like the 90s. So, uh, but one of the chants was, uh, Sharon and Hitler are the same. The only difference is the name. And that's like burned into my psyche. That's intense. Uh, this is like second intifada, right? This is like when the there was this brutal, violent crackdown where there were just images, nonstop images of uh, Palestinian kids throwing stones and then getting shot dead for it. Every Muslim I knew uh, had, uh, you know, a little tiny dome of the rock in their homes where you could see the golden dome, and it, it's it's such an important place for us as Muslims. But culturally, as a Muslim Americans, you know, going to these protests voicing our discontent with the American position that we will uh, have Israel's back no matter how bad it gets for the Palestinians. This always felt like we had a personal responsibility to voice our opposition. Emily, can you do the same? Just explain why this conflict is meaningful to you and just introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Emily Tampkin. I'm a journalist and perhaps most relevantly to this conversation, the author of a book called Bad Jews. Um, history of American Jewish politics and identities, which is about how over the last hundred years, American Jews have um, tried to define who we are in relationship to the country at large, but also in relationship to one another. And what does it mean to be a good Jew in America and who gets to decide? Um, I feel sort of uncomfortable answering this question only insofar as, you know, this war is not about me. I'm not Israeli American. I'm an American Jew. Um, this is first and foremost about people in Israel and in Gaza. Um, but that said, I think for much of the 20th century, including my own family's, you know, sort of ideological positioning, um, to be an American Jew is to support Israel, right? And I mean, and I think particularly until the last several years, this was really an unchallenged tenet of American Jewish life. Many of us, including myself, have friends there. Many have family there. There are American Jews who are also Israeli. Like there is a, a connection to the to this issue. And so I feel, I guess all this is to say is that in addition to, you know, feeling invested and interested and 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 unwilling to look uh, unable rather to look away from what's happening in Israel and Gaza, um, I also feel invested and interested and unable to look away from what is happening within American Jewish communities right now. I'm going to ask each of you this question, too. Do you feel safe right now? You're shaking your head, Amen. I'm just terrified to post. Hmm. I'm afraid of any of the blowback that we've seen happening to people um, tweeting about like genocide and tweeting about how hurt and angry they feel about American complicity and what's happening in Gaza, ending up these, these people getting fired, right? Because it just when you if you express yourself on social media right now in this moment where there is so much anger and fear, you might inadvertently trigger something and this pylon might come for you next where your words will be taken out of context. People will be telling you what you meant by something even though you disagree with them and it won't matter if you agree with them or not, because they're going to come for your job. They're going to come for your livelihood. Do you worry about your physical safety? No, I don't. 
I'm worried about the, my Jewish friends and my Jewish neighbors, and I relate to them a lot right now because after 9/11, there was like the the hair on the back of your neck was just standing the whole time, and everywhere you looked, you saw these examples of people who looked like you getting hurt. And you feel like your Jewish friends are seeing that now. I do feel like my Jewish friends are seeing that right now. I do. Emily, do you feel like you see that right now? I mean, okay, so I should say first that I personally do feel safe right now. Um, you know, and I I write as a Jewish person under my own name. I wear a Star of David. Like I, you know, I, I feel like I'm like a, like I'm identifiable as like a Jewish lady. Um, I personally feel safe. That said, I know that many American Jews do not feel safe right now. And I think it's important. I feel like it's really important to distinguish between actual um, attacks, which are horrific. At the same time, I think it's important to distinguish. It's important to distinguish actual threats um, from feelings of discomfort. So, you know, when a Palestinian writer is, is, barred from speaking or a book on Palestinian issues. So like, for example, Nathan Thrall, who wrote a book on the day of a life of a gentleman in the West Bank um, and tried to document how hard it was to be Palestinian in the West Bank, like that book being canceled does not actually make any American Jew safer. It doesn't. That doesn't add to our safety. It doesn't add to our security. It, it, that just shuts down discourse and discussion. Um, American Jewish students on college campuses. And my heart really, like, sincerely, my heart goes out to them. They're young, they're on campus, they're trying to process what all of this means. You know, they deserve to feel safe. But so do their Muslim American and their Palestinian American and their Palestinian colleagues. And both sides are allowed to protest and to figure out what it means to protest, right? And to figure out how to articulate what it is that you want to say in the political arena. That's part of why you go to university. But I, I also do worry, especially for young people, like, I think it is just, I think that, I think it is so easy to have your whole identity when you're a small minority to, you know, be people hate you and you're attacked and you should be afraid and you need to be defensive. And I'm not saying that, that people shouldn't be wary. I'm not saying that people shouldn't be uh, attentive to threat. But I am saying, like, I, I really think that that is a very tempting and reductive way to look at your Jewish identity. And I, I, I hope I'll just speak for myself. You're more than this. You are capable of more than being afraid right now. To me. From the very beginning, the response to October 7th seemed wild. Like, immediately there were these quasi-public figures, professors, sending out statements of, like, celebration. But then they were immediately fired, docs, like, right away. And so that was like, what just happened there? Then there were also people being punished for behavior that seemed kind of anodyne, like, the Berkeley professor who lost his editing job for retweeting an Onion article. And the headline on that article was, Dying Gazans Criticized for Not Using Last Words to Condemn Hamas. And then in between the really atrocious stuff and the people posting satire, there were people signing these statements that just seemed ill-conceived. Like, I want to talk about one of those incidents, the Harvard incident. Because everyone talked about it because it's Harvard, essentially. The statement goes out in the wake of October 7th. A bunch of student groups basically saying the blame for this attack falls squarely on the Israeli government. And it didn't condemn the violence by Hamas. And in the days after, students who signed the statement were singled out for harassment. There was a truck driving around campus saying these people are anti-Semites. 
I'm wondering what both of you made of this incident and what it sort of told you about where we are in talking to each other. I uh, I have a lot of feelings about this. I think what the Harvard letter, maybe they could have written it out better. I, I, I wish that they wrote it out better. But to me, the sentiment is that it's frustrating because a lot of this sentiment that history did not start on October 7th and that there are legitimate grievances on the Palestinian side and that the war, there was no war on the Israeli side, but there is war happening on the Palestinian side. This is something that Palestinians have been trying to bring attention to for the last 20 years, right? Uh, There was like the BDS movement, just literally only trying to bring attention to this in a peaceful way that was immediately shut down and cast out as anti-Semitic. Encouraging people to divest from Israel. Correct. And, And this is like a peaceful way of trying to call attention to the fact that the situation in Gaza is insustainable, right? And that people that were living there were literally being calorie counted by the Israeli government and how much food there and aid they were allowing in. And this was the situation on October 6th, right? The situation on October 6th was not peace. Peace wasn't broken. And, you know, this is a point that a lot of people in Israel have been making. This is the point that a lot of Israeli uh, professors and journalists have been continuously making nonstop. Uh, But for me, this singling out of this student organization was nefarious. This intention to punish people and quell their voices was intentional, and it was meant to have the chilling effect that it did have. Yeah, I feel like there's so much projection going on in a lot of the response, to use the psychological term, where it's like there's an it begins with an absence. Like there's a statement that comes out, it doesn't say something, and in that void, all of people's fear enters in, and an ungenerous observer could assume, like, you don't care about X or Y or Z that's important to me. I don't know if you see it that way, though, Emily. Um, okay. I will be honest and say that I felt very sad for friends of mine in Israel, like journalists, people on the Israeli left, who felt like the world was telling them, like, you you deserve this. Because people on the left, not just this one letter, presented only the context, which I completely agree with you, exists and is real and history did not begin on October 7th. But we're kind of like, we just suffered the worst terrorist attack in our country's history, like... Could, can you not just acknowledge that we're that that, that, that happened, right? And that, that and that, that people were taken hostage and that people were killed, so the, chil- the children were killed. Like, could you just acknowledge that pain before we move on to discussing the context or before we go on to calling for a ceasefire? So that that was their pain in that moment was hard to see. Um that said, while I personally think that the letter well, I personally would have liked to see Israeli pain on October 7th recognized. Um, I do understand why that day or that weekend there were also pro-Palestinian rallies happening, right? Because people knew what was going to happen next. And people didn't want to forget the context. It strikes me that both sides here both see themselves as marginalized and the other side is powerful. And it's like a fundamental disagreement in terms of an emotional disagreement. And yet what you're both pointing to is like, you need to look at the actual structures of power and how they're operating. Uh, Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, And also, I guess I've, you know, I've been saddened by these sort of back and forths about like, 
you know, the back and forth about who bombed the, the hospital. Of course, it's important. Like the distinction between whether or not Israel intentionally bombed a hospital, that is not a distinction without a difference. It's important to get to the, the bottom of what happened, right? Or to, to do that to the best of your ability. On the other hand, like if, if an explosion goes off by a hospital under a place where people are under aerial bombardment and they can't leave and they're running out of food and water and fuel, and all of this exists within the context of this war and this violence, like, isn't, isn't the, the death what matters, right? Like, isn't, isn't the loss of humanity, is that not the context that we keep need to return, that we need to return to, right? Which is that even before October 7th, this was, I believe, the deadliest year for Palestinians since the UN began keeping track of these numbers. Like, there, there is a side that you can be on that's, not to sound like Pollyanna here, but like, I don't know, you can be on the side of humanity, Right. You, you can be on the side of wanting people to stop dying. You can be on the side of wanting Israeli children and Palestinian children to be able to grow up safely. And it, I, I've been disheartened at the, uh, the lack of space, I guess, for that view. Mm-hmm. Well said. We'll be right back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. How do you guys think about silencing other people? Because it seems like there's a lot of attempted silencing going on. Like there's the doxing of people who make statements. There's people ripping down signs um, of, you know, hostages. Eamon, I guess I'm wondering, like, do you think about that? And like, when is it appropriate to ask someone to take a seat? Yeah, I want to be careful about how I answer this because I do have very strong feelings about this. I come from the East Coast. I grew up in the shadow of New York City. I grew up with graffiti. I grew up with like this idea that the walls are the the canvas for the people. And I have never in my life ever seen an NYPD officer arresting somebody for taking down a poster. So for me... We, we need to talk about the power imbalance of like whose voices are being silenced and what ways and how does that factor into the, the larger power dynamic that there is an oppressor that is state sponsored by the state that we are all currently in in America. And that when we, when we look at the walls and people putting up these posters for political gain to try to elicit this uh, political action from people, you know, 
for me, it's not my place to say like what their intentions are, so I won't. But this idea that people can't take them down if they don't agree with it is so crazy because this is just the, the state of the New York City walls. Could I, could I just say briefly on the issue of silencing? Okay, so on the posters specifically, I think on the one hand, I understand that people look at them and they're like, this is really propaganda. On the other hand, I also know people who are giving them out or putting them up because they want to feel some connection to the hostages, right? And actually, I think that there's a distinction to be made between the hostages and the Israeli government, which we should say miserably failed these people, which is why they are sitting hostage in the first place, and which by their own admission has not prioritized getting them back to Israel. Um, so we can <laughs> we can make that distinction as well. Um, I think in terms of silencing more generally, like, you know, there was a professor also at Columbia who wrote saying that this was an awesome day on October 7th. I do not believe that this was an awe-inspiring day. I also think that if you're going to say, well, he should have his tenure removed and he should be fired, like, that's not a precedent I personally want to see set within academia. I think one thing that I would encourage American Jewish listeners to this program who are maybe skeptical of anything that I've been saying to remember is that um, the role of the state and the role of authority really matters. So... I understand looking at this moment within the context of American Jewish pain and American Jewish trauma and American Jewish fear, but the high, the most powerful people in this country have been so full-throated in their rebuttal against anti-Semitism, and by the way, are also supporting the state of Israel. Yeah, yeah. Just just to add on that point, there already is a gigantic consensus in this country to do everything they can for the state of Israel. Uh, but you don't. You're not going to find that for Palestinians. And also, when it comes to silencing people, I think the bar for punishing people who are being pro-Palestine for what they say is so low. But the bar for even calling someone out for being genocidal of Palestinians is is non-existent. Right? Lindsey Graham was on. Uh, on TV saying that we needed to level the place and turn it into a parking lot. Nothing's going to happen to Lindsey Graham for, for talking about killing 2 million people to make way for a parking lot. The The level of genocidal rhetoric and also this, uh, this conflation of people who support Palestine with being supporters of Hamas, which is insane, is incredibly prevalent. And so if we were to hold that same bar with the other side, it would be a whole different, a, a totally different landscape. Do either of you feel like there's a place or a group of people that's having these nuanced cross-cultural conversations well? Like, Eamon, I know that you wrote about a dialogue group called Sisters of Salam Shalom. What did talking to them tell you about right now and like w what we could be doing better? Yeah, that piece was interesting. Um, the person who I interviewed, her name was Ataya Aftab. She's not Palestinian. She's just Muslim, but she is a member of this interfaith group, which she doesn't like to call interfaith group because for her, it's about forming relationships where there are otherwise barriers to forming those relationships. She said that uh, other groups that are similar where they were trying to build bridges between Muslims and, and Jewish in America or otherwise had failed was because they were all putting it upon themselves to solve this crisis, to solve this conflict. And for her, their goal was to first break bread together, talk about anything other than the conflict. And then once that trust was formed, then you can 
start to have these honest conversations with each other without assuming the worst in each other's statements or feelings. And she sort of caught me off guard when I asked her, like, how can people have better dialogue online? She was like, you know, if you feel uncomfortable about something and you feel like you need to turn away, just turn away. There's no shame about that. It just sounds like we have to go so far backwards with each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I think the reason for this is because as much of the role that anti-Semitism plays into this conflict, so does Islamophobia. There's a long history of Muslims and Jews being friendly neighbors in the Arab world. And one of the, the biggest tragedies for me uh, as an Arab person who's Egyptian is hearing stories about my mom, uh, you know, hanging out with Jewish kids on Saturday on their way to the synagogue in Egypt, where right now there is probably close to zero Jewish people because of this conflict. Because after the, the sixth, or I guess after the start of the Six Day War, Jews were forcibly expelled from the Arab world, which is a, a tragedy. And so now we have so many generations, I think we're like two, gen two, three generations deep, where a lot of the Arab world have never met a Jewish person in their lives. And we also have people in the Jewish world who are so uh, blinded by this conflict into believing that there is no compatibility between Muslims and Jews. And all you have to do is go to any bagel shop in New York City. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, there's this, you know, bagels uh, in, in my area, uh, specifically in Northern Jersey, I would say the best bagels are made by Palestinians. Whereas in New York City, I think uh, the, the Jewish people got that on lock. But the idea that by nature we are at war or at conflict or this this conflict is so complicated and it goes back thousands of years is a misnomer and i think it's designed to hurt us is there anything giving each of you hope no <laughs> that's dark i think the thing it, it's not it's not hope but i do think if people who have lost loved ones in this Israelis who either their families were their family members were taken hostage or they were killed can go out and say, please, you need to see the humanity in everyone. Then like I sitting in D.C. don't get to say anything, anything different. And, you know, again, I, I understand that I'm asking something of people by saying you need to have empathy. You need to be brave, but you're human. So you do. So that's what I'll I'll end on. Emily, Amen. I'm really grateful for your time and for coming and being in conversation with me. I'm grateful. Thank you for moderating the discussion. You rock. I love what next. Eamon Ismail is a staff writer at Slate. Emily Tamkin is a journalist and the author of The Influence of Soros and Bad Jews. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time. <laughs>